0: Genesis 47, let's read together. I'm going to read the chapter, and you follow along with me. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brethren, and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, "What is your occupation?" And they said to Pharaoh, "Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, "We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen." Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them my chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are one hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers, and he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all their father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread. For why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock, if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my lord that our money is gone. My lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's, and as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priest he did not buy. For the priest had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. That's 20%. Four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, for your food, for those of your households, and those and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives, let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should receive one fifth, except for the land of the priests only which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, Please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So here in Genesis 47, there is a lot that we could look at. We see, the, um, we see the precedent of tax-exempt status for the church right here in the book of Genesis. If you, even in Egypt, they knew that that's the way it should be. I'm just teasing. It's not a right. It's a privilege that's been given to us um, So here in Genesis 47, what I really want to concentrate on is the picture of Christ that we see here. So we see, I think, very clearly that Joseph is this picture of Christ that we've seen. And we've seen a type and a picture of Christ beginning with Adam uh, all the way now coming to the life of Joseph. We saw it with Jacob, and we see it now with Joseph. And we've seen it in so many ways that Joseph left his father's land and was sent into Egypt, and he became the savior of the world, literally, saving them from the famine. And so when we get to this point in Joseph's story and in the story of Jacob, and we see after all that Joseph went through, 13 years in Egypt, and then he's revealed, uh, he sees his brothers, and then after several years he finally reveals himself to his brothers. And out of that revelation that I am Joseph, your brother, that you sold into slavery, he, they end up bringing Jacob and the whole household to Egypt. And Pharaoh gives to Israel, gives to Joseph and his family, gives to Jacob and his household the best of the land. And so they come uh, and we see now the the, the end of, So remember Pharaoh's dream, seven fat years and seven lean years. And this story picks up in the last five years of the famine. And in those last five years of the famine, Jacob and his household comes to Egypt. And the Bible says the famine is all throughout the land. It's throughout the land of Egypt. It's throughout the land of Canaan. And we see Jacob and his household come. And, and in verse, the first verse of this chapter, says, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. So here is Jacob, Abraham's grandson, who comes out of the land of Canaan, who comes out of the promised land. Where did all this begin Uh, In terms of the patriarchs, we saw this when God calls Abraham out of his father's land. He says, go to a land that I will show you. And he takes Abraham to the land of Canaan and he travels the land of Canaan and God tells Abraham, I give you all of this land. I give it to you and I give it to your descendants. And Abraham says, well, I don't have any descendants. I've only got a servant, uh, Eleazar of Damascus. And God says, I'm going to give you... A son. I'm going to give you descendants, and your descendants will be as the stars in heaven and the sand of the earth. And so, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Remember his second born son. And Isaac has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the second born. And the blessing went to Jacob, not to Esau, the first born. And so, we see Jacob now leaving. Remember, as a boy, he leaves the promised land and he spends 20 years with his uncle. Then he comes back to the promised land and he raises his family there. And his next to last son, the firstborn of his beloved Rachel, is Joseph. And when Joseph is 17, Joseph goes to check on the sheep and he never returns. And for 22 years, Jacob believes Joseph is dead, killed by wild animals. That was the lie perpetrated by Joseph. Joseph's brothers. And so now here is Jacob reunited with Joseph. And the family has all come to Egypt. And we see this principle that is throughout the scripture that God calls his children out of one land and into another. And this is what Joseph says. My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all, their, all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan to where? Into the land of Egypt. So Israel and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan into Egypt and they come with all their possessions leaving behind the land of promise. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? And we know, though Jacob doesn't know, and Joseph doesn't know, we know, because we have the record of Scripture, that once Jacob and his household, the Bible says the number totaled 70, once Jacob and his household came into Egypt, they would not leave for over 400 years. And remember what God told Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will be with you, and I will make you a great nation there. You can imagine what Jacob must be thinking. We're going to go down. We're going to get through the famine. It's going to be okay, and then we're going to we're going to come back to the promised land that God has given to us. But instead, we see, and God tells Jacob this your son Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. That was a saying which meant God was telling Jacob, Jacob, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to die there. And this is why Jacob makes Joseph swear that he will carry his dead body back to the promised land to be buried with his fathers, not to be buried in the land of Egypt. But even though Joseph, even though, excuse me, Jacob knew that he would die there, I don't know that anyone foresaw that they would be in Egypt that long and that they would become a great nation of slaves. That's what they became. They became a nation of slaves. God made them a great nation, but he didn't make them a great nation with military might. With power and strength, he made them a great nation in numbers, and they became slaves in Egypt. And here is this nation of slaves, and and at some point, we'll get to the story of Moses, but not today. But this nation of slaves is led out of Egypt, not with. With their military might, not with their strength, but through the mighty hand of God. Through the deliverance that God brought on behalf of this nation that was utterly powerless before Egypt. And we see this even here. Here is this household. Not a great nation, but a household who comes to this great empire of Egypt. And they come, why? Out of desperation for life. Because there was no way for them to survive otherwise. And unbeknownst to them, it was God who sent little Joseph ahead and raised him up to become the ruler over Egypt so that through Joseph, God could bring salvation to the world. And so that through Joseph, the line of the Messiah, through his brother Judah, would be preserved so that we could be here today talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who didn't die from a famine in the loins of his ancestor Judah, but lived and survived and was born of the Virgin Mary at the appointed time by God. And here we are today, Christians, followers of this Jesus that God brought forth Through the salvation that Joseph brought, not just to his household, not just to the nation of Egypt, but to the world. And so God calls his children out of one land and into another. We see this recurring theme of God calling us out. We see it in Adam. And Eve leaving the garden. We see it with Noah and his family boarding the ark. We see it with Abraham leaving his country. We see it with Jacob as a young boy fleeing his home in fear of his life from his brother Esau. We see it with Joseph being carried away into slavery in Egypt. We see it now with Jacob as an old man leaving the promised land to go down to Egypt. And we can see this throughout the scripture, that God calls his children out of one land and into another. So the scripture is full of this picture that reveals how God calls us out of one land into another. This is not about geography. This is not geographical. It's spiritual. We're called out of one life, and we're called into the life of another. We're not just called to another life. We're called to the life of another. We finished our series this morning in the Bible study uh, on the holiness of God. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we, we can't help but, but consider the, the otherness of God. That God is other than, excuse me, I'm having technical difficulty. My earpiece doesn't want to stay in its place. When we talk about the holiness of God, we have to talk about the otherness of God. And I thought about this as we had this discussion today in our Bible study, how the serpent came to Adam and Eve and said, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because in the day you eat of the fruit, he knows that you'll become like him. But you know what our problem is? Our problem isn't that we, yes, we do make ourselves gods. I mean, we try to rule and, and, and make ourselves the, the Lord of our own lives. But, but I think equally, uh, as bad a problem that we have is that we make God like us. You hear it all the time when people talk about Christ, when they talk about God. God. And we tend to look at God and we tend to try to make God like us. We bring God down to our level. And we can't do that because God is not like us. Yes, Jesus left heaven. Yes, he put on flesh. He became a man. He is the God-man. He was 100% human and he was 100% divine. But even in his humanity, he was like us in that he was human. But Jesus is other than we are. He always has been and he always will be. And so the Bible doesn't just call us to another life. The Bible calls us to the life of another. And this is what we see pictured throughout the scripture when God calls people out of their land to another land. So the scripture gives us these pictures of being called out of one life into the life of another. Or we could say it like this, we're called out of our own life into the life of Christ. Or we're called from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. We're called out of an old life and into a new life. God calls us out of sin and death and by the power of his spirit he brings us into eternal life and righteousness in Christ. And when we're born again, we become someone and something other than we were. This is why Paul says, If any man be in Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then verse 18 begins with, Now all things are of God. The old has passed away. You are other than. When you become that new creation, when you're born again, you become other than what you were. Now, remember, I I think one of the the best ways to understand the difficulty in this is to think about Noah, and this is why the Bible gives us the story of Noah. This is why God took Noah through everything he took him through, so that we could learn not just... Practical application, but so that we can learn gospel application. So Noah lives on an earth for 600 years, and then he gets off the ark onto a new earth, and the only memory he has is what? Of an earth that he's known for 600 years. What does he have to do? He can't go back to the old earth because it doesn't exist. and He can't go back to the old creation because that's gone. Do you understand in a practical sense? I know he was on the same earth, but after... The flood, after the waters covered everything, the earth Noah walked back onto after being on the ark for a year was different. But his memories were the same. So what did Noah have to do? He had to renew his mind to the truth. When you're born again, you have been brought into a new creation. But you've got memories of the old. What do you have to do? You've got to renew your mind to the reality of a new creation. This is what Joseph had to do in Egypt. This is why when he had his firstborn son, Manasseh, he said, God has made me forget the toil, the pain of my father's house. And when Ephraim was born, he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph renewed his mind to the reality that he is a new man in a new land. And he put the old behind him. That was great. It was great that he was able to do that. But God used all of that from his past. And God was using. And God did that. And Joseph came to realize that. Yes, I am. But God has done this for a reason. This is why God doesn't erase your past. This is why you don't. God doesn't just give you convenient amnesia of all the of all your past, even the painful parts of your past. It's not that we forget, it's that we become new. And out of the newness, we renew our mind and we deal with those realities. We don't pretend like they don't exist. We give them to God and we say, okay, God, I trust you. God, I've been a slave in Egypt for 13 years. I don't know why, but I give it to you. And boom, one day, Joseph sees his brothers and he understands exactly why God made him a slave in Egypt. But in his years of slavery, guess what? Joseph remained faithful and God raised him up and he became ruler in Egypt. And because of his place of authority, he is able to bring salvation, not only to Egypt, but to his father and to the very brothers who sought to end his life and get rid of him. But remember, Joseph didn't embrace bitterness. He embraced brokenness. And out of brokenness, God raised up Joseph and gave him authority and gave him power. Had Joseph spent 13 years embracing bitterness, Joseph could have never done what he did. He would have just remained a bitter person. Holding on to his pride. Holding on to his self-salvation. Holding on to those things. But when we let go of bitterness. And we embrace the brokenness that God brings to our life. And we give that to God. And we allow God to take that. God will do something with that. He did it with Joseph. And God didn't. Love Joseph more than he loves you. So whatever brokenness, whatever bitterness, whatever you might be dealing with in your life, God wants to take that. And God wants to raise you up. This is why we can trust God. This is why the Bible says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Give those things to Jesus. And trust him. As you humble yourself, trust Him to raise you up in due season, in due time. Just like He did with Joseph. We are not our own. We belong to Jesus. This is reality, church. As Joseph rules in Egypt, we see a type of the sovereign Lord Jesus. People come to Joseph and they give up everything in exchange for their salvation. He took all the money. He took all the livestock. They come back and they say, you've got our money. You've got our livestock. We have nothing except our land and our bodies. He said, well, I'll take that too. You or I wouldn't do that. Here's here's how we make God one of us. We bring God to our human level. Can you imagine today a ruler in today's political cultural environment can you imagine if a ruler of a nation said okay you guys are starving let's see Do you have any money no we have no money we've given you all of our money okay we got any animals we've given you all of our animals we have nothing left except our land and our bodies okay If you give me your land and yourself to become slaves, I'll give you seed. Can you imagine the furor, the the outcry? And we would say, Jesus would never do that. Jesus would just give it. He wouldn't require anything in exchange for it. That's not exactly true, is it? We seem to conveniently forget that Jesus says, If you desire to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Tell me, what are you going to carry to the other side of the cross? What are you going to carry with you to the cross? What are you going to take up on that cross with you when you're crucified? What what is it that you're going to take to the cross? You're not going to take anything to the cross. What did Jesus take to the cross? We can't show what Jesus took to the cross because Jesus took nothing to the cross. He didn't even have a loincloth, he didn't even have a rag covering his private parts. Jesus was on the cross, totally and completely exposed, and we can't even show an accurate portrayal of what Jesus looked like on the cross because it's too controversial. And Jesus says that is the same cross that you are called to. But we want to somehow think that we can come to Jesus and keep all of our stuff. We somehow think we can come to Jesus and keep our bitterness. Or we can come to Jesus and keep my dreams and the things that I want for my life. Then we go to the other side of the ditch and we think that, that in order to come to Jesus, losing everything, giving up everything, laying down everything means that I'm just going to have to settle for a life of misery, I guess. And this, the consolation I get is that one day when I die, I guess I'll get to go to heaven, but I'm just going to have to settle to be miserable here on earth. No, that's not right. That's not really understanding what God is calling us to. We're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. When we're redeemed by Christ, we're bought with a price and we are no longer our own. We belong to Jesus totally and completely. This is true whether we realize it or whether we like it. And we have to renew our mind to this truth. That when we are born again, we belong to Jesus. Or Paul writes it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. So to belong to Jesus is to become a slave to God. We don't like that word slave. In the Bible, the word slave is translated servant or bond servant. But if we go back to the real meaning of that word, it just simply means slave. But we're too politically correct to, to use that word sometimes. And I'm with you. I mean, we despise this thought for the most part. But the reality is this. We are all slaves to something or someone. We're born slaves of sin whose end is eternal death. Apart from the grace of God. We're born in sin and death and we are on our way to hell. And there is no way that we can keep ourselves from going there. But by the grace of God of a sovereign God. We're born again slaves of God. You're born a slave to sin. You're born again a slave to God. When Christ saves us and gives us a new birth, we are set free from sin and death. We become slaves of God, having our fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. Romans 6, 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, You have your fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. The picture of Joseph extracting all the money, all the livestock, all the possessions, all the land, and even their very lives in exchange for their salvation pictures how we come to Christ. We come in the most vulnerable state, desperate for life. Apart from Christ, we are living in such extreme famine. We have nothing but certain death. Christ calls us to leave all and to follow him. Not that we may lose all, but that we may gain what is most valuable. Jesus said, the thief comes but to steal, to kill and to destroy. He was talking about those false teachers that come in and teach A different gospel that's not a gospel at all. That's not good news at all. Oh, it tickles the ears. It sounds really good. But he says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundant. The choice for the people in Egypt was life or death. Seven years of extreme famine made their need for life as clear as crystal. They faced certain death. And they came to this point of realizing what good was their money or their land or their livestock if they were going to all die. So they exchanged everything for life. Apart from Christ, we are living in such extreme famine. We have nothing but certain death. Christ calls us to leave all and to follow him. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, recorded in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that is God. And he goes and he says to Jesus, I've, I, I've kept all the commandments. Jesus tells him, in fact, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, Do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. See all these moralistic rules? And he says, I've done all of those since my youth. Jesus did not dispute with him that he had or had not. What was the response of Jesus? Jesus didn't say, no, you haven't. I know what your thoughts were. No, Jesus didn't dispute that. Here's the response of Jesus. Jesus says to him, I love what Mark says. Verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad. The young man was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus reminded him of five commandments that dealt with our moralistic behavior. And in one, in one command, in one request, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me, Jesus presents to him all the other commandments. No other gods before you. The, the, the commandments that deal with our worship of God. He said, you've got your moralistic behavior down really well, but what is your true God? Let's see if there are any gods before the true and living God. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he he couldn't do it. Which told Jesus what? That he couldn't keep the very first commandment. That he actually had a God that was before the God he professed to worship. And the God he professed to live for, because he could not lay down his riches because his riches had become his God. Now, it's easy if we're not rich to point fingers at rich people. But before we point fingers at anybody, we need to realize that it's not just money that can become our idol, it can be anything, it can be anyone. that can become the God that we worship, the God that we idolize. And Jesus says this to this young man, and the reaction of his disciples are classic. He went away sad, and then he says this. He looked around, and he told his disciples how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, do you see? Jesus knew that they didn't get it. Because Jesus' disciples, he didn't have a bunch of rich guys, they had left everything. And they're like, whew, man. Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches? Do you know that you don't have to have riches to trust in riches? You might be as poor as dirt, but still trusting in riches. Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for rich men to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, what then? Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. In other words, who doesn't trust in riches? Who doesn't need money? Who, who, who doesn't need the things? Who, who's not struggling with this? Who can be saved? Jesus says, You can't save yourself. No man can save himself, rich or poor. Young or old, it doesn't matter your condition. You can't save yourself. It's impossible. But with God, with God, all things are possible. This is a hard saying, but Jesus calls us to lose all in order to gain all. God gives to us in Christ true riches in this life and the next. The riches of true life are found only in Christ Now I want you to hear the hope and the promise that Jesus gives his disciples as he continues this discourse, as they grapple with his saying. So in in verse, in verse 17, they're like, who can be saved then? He says, this is impossible for man, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, verse 28... See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands. For my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now and this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Don't forget the persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I used to be one of those prosperity gospel guys who would take these scriptures and twist all this around and somehow justify turning God into someone you can manipulate to to gain prosperity and riches. And do all kinds of gyrations with the scripture and say, well, that's what Jesus said, but you don't really understand what Jesus really meant. I'm just going to take Jesus at face value, okay? I think instead of trying to twist the scriptures and make them say something that they don't say, that we want them to say, let's just take the scripture for what the scripture says. And we know this that if we are putting our trust in riches, regardless of where we're at right now, on on the riches, ladder. Whether we're low or whether we're high or whether we're somewhere in the middle. If we're putting our trust, is, our trust in riches, we've got problems. We've made our prosperity and our wealth and our riches an idol. And Jesus says you've got to be willing to lay your idols down regardless of what they are. If you're living in your past and you've made your past an idol, you better lay it down. If you're looking to your success and your wealth and that's become your idol, you better lay it down. It doesn't matter what it is. Lay it down, bring it to Jesus. Nail it to the cross and let him have it. This promise that Jesus gives, this hope that he gives that that if you give up these things, you will receive them In this life and in the life to come, this is not a promise of material prosperity in the way that we often think of it. But what it is is a promise of abundant provision in all things. What God has promised is that if we will come to him open and lay our lives before him and and come to the cross bare and naked and allow ourselves to be crucified with Christ, giving up everything that God will Provide for us all that we need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That we will receive through that death, through that crucifixion with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life that we now have It is the life of the Savior. It is the resurrection life of Christ. And when he gives us that life, he gives it to us freely. And in that life, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, where? In Christ. That God has freely given to us all things. This is what Paul writes in his his letter to the Romans. If God did not spare his son how much more will he also freely give us all things in Christ? What do we have to be afraid of, church? The call is very clear. God calls us out of one land into another. He calls us out of one life into the life of another. He calls us to come and lay our very lives down before him that he may own us. And rule us. Jesus did not die just to become your Savior, He is called Lord. He's not called the Savior of Saviors. He's called the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is presented throughout Scripture not just as a Savior, but he is presented as the Lord, as the King. And he rules and he reigns supreme. And whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, he rules over you, he is your Lord. You will either serve Him with a willing heart or you will submit to Him with a rebellious heart. There is a day coming, the Bible says, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Every knee, every tongue. That doesn't mean every knee that bows is going to spend eternity in heaven. It means that every created Thing will recognize and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Why? Because He is Lord. Because He is Creator. By the grace of God, God calls you, God invites you to come to Him. Not in rebellion, but willingly. Not reluctantly, but willingly. To lay your life down. To receive what he has to give to you, that is salvation. This is the picture we see with Joseph in Egypt. When we see Israel come and they receive life. And they receive salvation. When Egypt comes and they receive life and they receive salvation. And they give their very selves to become servants, to become slaves. This is how we come to the cross. This is what we are invited to. The world doesn't like that message. That's why Paul says this message is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't sound appealing to them. To lose your power, to lose your authority... To come to a cross and be stripped of everything and die? Why would I do that? So that you could gain the riches and the life that is available to you no other way. So that you could be raised up and given a position and a power and authority that you will never be able to gain on this earth, in this world, by any worldly means. There is not enough money in the universe to purchase what has been given to you freely in Christ Jesus. But we become so distracted by our idolatrous eyes that we believe the lie instead of embracing the truth. And the enemy wants us to believe that we actually lose in the cross instead of gaining everything. That's why you have to come By faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, Abraham chose not to live in a city because he saw by faith a city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. Abraham by faith saw the resurrected Jesus, which is why Abraham by faith could take his only son Isaac to the mountain and even thrust a knife into his heart if need be. And his statement before he took that boy up on that mountain was, me and the lad are going to worship and we will return. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham knew that even had he had to kill Isaac, God would have raised him up because he knew the promise That God had given. He saw by faith the promise. Jesus says in John's gospel chapter 8, Abraham saw me in my day. The Pharisees were indignant and they said, you're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham see you? The answer is he saw him by faith. He saw the resurrected Lord in his day of power, in his day of resurrection, and he knew that the promise that God had given him was true. It was real. That's Abraham wandering a desolate wilderness, looking ahead by faith into things thousands of years into the future. Here we are with the word of God complete for us, reading the stories of these men's lives, seeing how God has worked in their lives, how God used types and shadows and used the circumstances of their life over and over and over again to show us that he is faithful, to prove to us that he is faithful. If that wasn't enough, I mean, if Adam and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David, if that wasn't enough, God sent his only son. And that son was born. That son lived. That son died on a cross. He was put in a tomb. And three days later, he was raised up again. He sits at the majesty on high ever to make intercession for us. And we still want to doubt somehow. I question God's love for me because he's how can you question God's love he gave his son he's proven his love he didn't just give his son to die but he raised his son up from the dead so that you and I could have life and we have this record of God's faithfulness not only written in this book but we have the record of God's faithfulness written on our hearts. He didn't just give you a book called the Bible, but he poured his spirit into your heart. And this is why we know his love doesn't fail. This is what Paul says. And we know that that tribulation produces patience and patience produces character and character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his spirit. He didn't just give you the word of God. He gave you the spirit of God. He's given you a written record, written record on the tablets of your heart. He took your cold, stony heart and he put in you a new heart of flesh. He took your dead spirit and he caused it to be resurrected and born again. He gave to you the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It dwells within you to strengthen even your mortal body. How can we question the love of God? How can we question whether God has our best interest at heart. How can we? Yet we do. And we do because we fix our eyes on the wrong things. We do because we fix our hearts on the wrong things. We do because it's too easy. See, no one said... That, that this was easy. It's not complicated, but it is hard. Renewing your mind is not complicated, but I'm, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that it's always easy. Discipleship is not complicated, but, but it's not easy. Walking with Jesus is not complicated, but it's also not always easy. Because sometimes God takes us to the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes God takes us to places that we don't want to go. They're dark, they're scary, they're unpleasant. Sometimes they're downright painful. But the question is do you trust your Savior? Do you know how dark and unpleasant and painful Joseph's slavery in Egypt was? I bet it was pretty dark, unpleasant, and painful at times. But there was nothing more dark and more painful than what Jesus himself went through when he came to this earth to die for us, to redeem us. And he went through that darkness and he went through that pain the, he, the, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the suffering and the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. Do you know that you were that joy? He did it to redeem you. He did it to take for himself a bride, to redeem for himself a bride. For his glory and for the glory of his father. This is impossible for man, but with God all things are possible. You need to remind yourself of that. Maybe more than once a week or once a month. Maybe every few moments you need to remind yourself this is impossible for man, but this is possible for God. There's nothing impossible for God. In your situation, in your circumstance, it might seem absolutely impossible. You need to remind yourself this is impossible for me, but all things are possible with God. Yeah, but I'm not seeing God do anything. I don't care. It's impossible for me, but all things are possible with God. If God can bring all the material world that we know of, all the material universe out of nothing, and bam, there it is. (sighs) Really? If God can send his son and his son can die, be crucified and buried, if God can raise him up on the third day, What are we worried about? I'm not trivializing anything you may go through in your life. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying there is nothing you will ever go through in life that should cause you to lose hope. Because we always have hope in Jesus. Because whatever may be, and most things are impossible for us, they are not impossible with God. Amen. All right, well, I barely got past, I didn't even get into page three yet of my message on Joseph's life story. So we're going to come back to Genesis 47 next week because we have some more things that we need to talk about from this chapter. So let's stand. I just want to encourage you that it seems... When we really honestly read the Scripture, when we read the words of Jesus, when we read the writings of Scripture, it may seem like that God is demanding too much. And if we feel like God is demanding too much, it's because we are not seeing the abundance of what He is giving. He is giving so much more than what He is demanding. I love what Caleb said today. What do we bring to God? The reality is we bring nothing but our sin to Him. I mean, we have nothing that God needs. We don't deserve to come to God. But God desires that you come to him. And he's made a way for you to come to him. And what he gives to you in Christ, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared. There is nothing greater that God could give you than what he has given you in your salvation. He has given you the very life of his son. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds and give us a revelation of the gift that you give to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would deliver us from looking to and focusing on those things that draw us away, that draw our attention away. Lord, whatever it may be, whether it's trusting in riches, whether it's living in our past, whether it's lamenting over unfulfilled dreams and visions, whether it's living in our past mistakes and our failures, that we've, that, that we've somehow convinced ourselves that you Cannot overlook. God deliver us from small vision and from small thinking. God heal us of our blindness and reveal to us how great and how glorious and how powerful our Savior and our Lord truly is. That He is Lord over everything the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there is nothing in our life that He is not Lord over. There is nothing in our life that can hold us back and keep us back. If we will give it to Him, if we will come to Him, I pray, Father, that you would draw us by your Spirit, that we would come to you open, just as we are. And we would trust. That you are the God that there is not anything impossible for. That with you all things are possible. Father, we ask that you do this for your glory in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.